Daniel chapter 1 is on page 625 in the Red Pew Bibles. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the chief, uh, uh, sorry, now God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azrael, sorry, Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than the, all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's uh, bow in prayer as we uh, come before, uh, as we come to consider God's word. Father, we thank you for uh, giving us your word. We thank you that uh, your word speaks so clearly to us of what it means to uh, live as godly people in an ungodly world. We pray as we uh, look at the book of Daniel this morning that uh, you would open our eyes and uh, soften our hearts, that we would understand and respond to what you have to say to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a Christian, the, um, the Bible describes you as being an alien. Uh, does anyone here feel like they are an alien? I don't think we tend to feel like aliens, do we? I, I mean, when I think of alien, I think of E.T., that kind of thing. But uh, in 1 Peter, we, we, we're told that we are strangers and aliens in a country that, uh, that we don't belong to. And uh, th th that's sort of an interesting kind of statement because uh, most of us here, I take it, would be Australians. 
and we love being Australians. We love being Australians as much as anyone uh, loves being Australian. We uh, live here, we work here, we raise our children here, we contribute to our uh, community in uh, many different ways. Uh, we celebrate Australia Day because we are Australians. Yet in one sense, we don't actually belong here. Uh, you might have a, anyone here got a, does anyone here have a certificate at home that actually proves that you are a citizen of Australia? Put your hand up if you've got one of those. Yes, yes. At least you can prove it, can't you? That's a great thing to, to have, a, a citizen, a certificate of Australian citizenship. Uh, many of us will have a passport which uh, says the same thing, that we are citizens of Australia. But as Christians, our true home is actually heaven. And uh, that is where we will spend all of eternity. Uh, that is our true home. And because of that, it actually makes us different from other people. Uh, our neighbours, our non-Christian neighbours, they think that this is as good as it gets. And so uh, they do what they can in order to maximise their experience of this life. Yet we know that we can look forward to something which is better, that we are sort of just passing through uh, en route to our true heavenly home. Now because we are so different, because we have that citizenship of heaven, uh, whereas others don't, uh, it means that there are certain pressures that are placed upon us. We want to live as citizens of heaven, but the world wants us to live just like everybody else. Uh, the world wants us to value the things which the world values and to believe what the world believes. The world wants us to work for the things which the people of this world work for. The world wants our morality to be the same as the morality of uh, non-Christians how they spend their money, how they conduct their relationships, how they behave at school and at work, we are expected not to stand out. And what that means is that each day we have to choose. Each day we need to choose whether we will live as citizens of heaven or whether we will live purely as citizens of this world. Each day we need to choose whether we will give in to the values of this world or whether we will stand as different and even opposed to the values of this world. Now, it's that kind of decision, that kind of choice that we make daily that God's people have always had to make. That is part and parcel of being God's people in a fallen world. And it's one of the reasons why the book of Daniel is so important. Now, when we think of Daniel, uh, if you're anything like me, you, uh, I tend to think of the um, Sunday school lessons, those great, fantastic Sunday school or school scripture lessons on uh, Daniel and his uh, you know, friends walking out of a, a fire alive and unburnt, uh, or of Daniel uh, spending the night in the Longlands Den and uh, walking away from that without any problems whatsoever. These are great stories. But what we're going to see over the next few months is that it is a book which helps us to live godly lives as aliens in a world which is not our home. A couple of the Bible study groups are going to be studying Daniel. Um, PWA is having a Daniel study day. A few of our blokes are going down to the Katoomba Men's Convention and guess what they're studying? They're studying Daniel. So Daniel is going to be a big part of our lives over this uh, coming term. Now, the politics of the Middle East uh, has always been complex. Always. And Daniel uh, lived during a time which can best be only be described as being a time of crisis for the Jews. If you care to open up uh, your Bibles at the book of Daniel, at uh, Daniel chapter 1, which you'll find on about page 625, we see this. Uh, the context is described for us in the first couple of verses. Let me read those verses for you. 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. I think a few words about the politics might just help to put us in the picture a little bit and to set the context. Uh, you, You remember that the Kingdom of Israel had split uh, during the reign of uh, of uh, Rehoboam, who was the the son of uh, of David of um, of Solomon rather. So you had the Northern Kingdom, ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, which was Judah and and uh, and Benjamin, uh, most commonly just referred to as being Judah. The Northern Kingdom had already been dissolved. Uh, they'd gone into exile in Assyria. What we're talking about here is the remains. We're talking about the southern kingdom of Judah, which had Jerusalem as its capital. The king of Judah was named Jehoiakim, and we're told that this happened in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Now, what that uh, means date-wise is that 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 places this in the year 605 BC. The superpower at that time was Babylon. Uh, There was always a tussle between Assyria, Egypt and Babylon. Babylon, during this period of time, had edged out the other two. Babylon was was the superpower. And Babylon, of course, is roughly equivalent to modern day Iraq. Their king's king's name was Nebuchadnezzar. If you can spell that, you're a better man than I am. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. Uh, He was expansionist and uh, the Babylonians uh, had uh, sent their armies out across that region and they had conquered peoples and they indeed conquered the Jews and they forced Most of the Jews, all of the Jews except a few poor people, they forced them into exile to live in Babylon. Part of their strategy to dilute the conquered land so so that uh, there wouldn't be uh, an insurgency that would eventually cause uh, an uprising and a rebellion. So the Babylonians had conquered the Jews, they'd forced... Uh, most of the Jews into Babylon. But that happened in the year 587 BC, which is 18 years after the event that we read about here in verses 1 and 2. What that means is that 18 years prior to the main Babylonian exile, that there had been a war and that uh, the Babylonians had been victorious, and some of the Jews, including Daniel, had already been taken into captivity. But in due time, they would be joined by the rest of the Jewish nation. So we're talking about the whole era of what is known as the Babylonian exile or the Babylonian captivity. Now, for godly Jews... And there were some godly Jews. This was a time of profound sadness. Uh, We see some of their sadness expressed in Psalms like uh, Psalm 137, uh, which starts by saying, which is a psalm which was written in the context of exile, where, and it's a psalm of lament, uh, where the psalmist cries out and says, By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. Puts a different spin on it to if you've just listened to that Boney M song from the 1970s or 1980s, right? By the rivers of Babylon we lay down and we wept as we remembered Zion. And the psalm goes on to say, our tormentors taunted us, saying, why don't you sing praises of, 
of your, your great Zion. And they said, how can we be singing praises? How can we be rejoicing when we are here in exile, that we are not in our land, the land that God had given us in Zion? By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. That was the godly Jews. You see, this was a time of profound tragedy for the Jews. And when you think about uh, how they developed as, as a nation, you can understand something of the spiritual tragedy that was involved here. Remember, God had made promises to Abraham. God had promised Abraham that he would make Abraham's descendants a people, that he would give them a land, and that he would be their God. And he had given them the promised land. They had the symbols of God's presence. They had the temple. They had the priests. They had the sacrifices. But now they had nothing. The land had been ripped out from underneath them. The temple had been destroyed. The, uh, the sacred items in the temple had been carted off to Babylon and were sitting in the temple of the pagan king. They lived as a shattered people in exile ruled by a pagan. It was as if all that uh, God had promised had come to nothing. Yet, friends, as the book of Daniel begins, who was it who delivered the Jews into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar? Take a look at verse 2. What does verse 2 say? Verse 2 tells us that it was the Lord who had delivered them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It was God who had not only allowed this to happen, it actually almost caused it to happen. God was sovereign over what was happening here. It was God disciplining his people. Throughout the book of Daniel, we learn a lot about the faithfulness of God. And uh, the faithfulness of God is a double-edged sword because what it means is that uh, not only is God faithful in caring for his people, uh, God is faithful in delivering upon his promises. And one of the promises that he had made uh, in the law, and you see it in Leviticus chapter 26, you can look it up afterwards, he promised them that if they obeyed his covenant, then he would bless them with abundance of his blessing. But if they disobeyed his covenant they would be disciplined and part of that discipline would be that they would be scattered amongst the nations, that they would be exiled. That's in Leviticus chapter 26. Uh, there is another more specific promise that's made in the Old Testament as well that actually names Babylon and that's in 2 Kings chapter 20. I've noted that for you in your uh, outlines there. In uh, 2 Kings chapter 20, the, uh, the king of Judah, Hezekiah, uh, entered into a, um, uh, a chummy relationship with the Babylonians. And he, what he was doing was he was actually trying to get a treaty going with the Babylonians to protect him from the Egyptians. And in doing that, he was putting his trust in the Babylonians rather than putting his trust in God. And for that, judgment was pronounced. And the judgment was that in the future that the Babylonians would actually invade and defeat uh, Judah, that they would t cart off the possessions from the king's palace into Babylon and that some of, of Hezekiah's descendants would actually end up working uh, as civil servants in the palace of the king of Babylon. That was a specific promise of judgment. And that is fulfilled here in Daniel chapter 1. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was an interesting character. <clears throat> as a conqueror, he was brutal. Uh, the Babylonian armies were greatly feared. 
his armies as they marched around the middle east conquering nations were known as being absolutely brutal they they burnt down people's houses they burnt down cities they leveled palaces they leveled temples wherever they went they killed they raped women they plundered people and they they herded human victims um, by their thousands uh, into Babylon uh, to, to live there in exile. They were greatly feared. And that is the way that he uh, uh, expanded his empire. But having secured his empire so brutally, he then planned and embarked on developing civilization. It's really ironic, isn't it, that, uh, that, that uh, the, the great civilizations of this world, where all of the great philosophy and art and wealth and culture, etc., etc., is, you know, is hubbed around, uh, these civilizations developed by the brutal conquering and taking over of, of other people, which is you know, remarkably uncivilized, isn't it? Uh, go to the great cities of the world where, uh, where culture and... Uh, and, and history abounds to go to Rome, go to Paris, go to London, where you'll see this magnificent uh, old buildings and wealth and culture, etc., etc. Remember that the reason, the way that it got that way, is because they went out into the, all of the world. They conquered inferior, you know, they conquered nations of people who were weaker than them, and then sucked all of the uh, wealth from those countries and centred centred them in their in their lands. That's why Paris is such a beautiful city as it is today, and Rome and, and London and so on. And that's what uh, Nebuchadnezzar did. He planned to build a great civilization, and that is what Babylon, in fact, became. Uh, you remember a few years back when Baghdad fell to the Americans, that uh, the media reported that uh, the, in the aftermath of that and in the chaos, that there was looting of uh, lots of absolutely priceless uh, antiquities uh, from museums which were unsecured around Baghdad at the time. And uh, those antiquities, those items, were the remnants of the great Babylonian civilization, which Nebuchadnezzar was the guy who uh, started off and spearheaded. He was a shrewd man. And uh, you see his shrewdness in the way that he treated some of his captives. Far from alienating the Jews who now lived amongst his people, far from uh, being ruthless and persecuting and uh, treating them absolutely brutally and creating an, in, an environment which would, uh, which would cause hatred for him, and uh, rebellion and insurrection, uh, he adopted the policy of assimilation. Let's actually treat these people in such a way that they, in fact, lose their identity and become Babylonians. In fact, he wanted them to help him to build his great civilization. You see that in verses 3 through to 6. Let me read those for you. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace, that is, the cream of the crop, he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, you can imagine some Jewish parents scrambling to get their kids enrolled in this program, 
can't you? I mean, what a opportunity to have your, king, your kid go to the King's University, basically, to be trained up to be a high-ranking public official. What an opportunity. You could see it that way. Or you could call this an intensive re-education program of the uh, potential leaders of the Jews. I'll tell you why I say that, why it's an intensive re-education program. There's a number of reasons. First of all, in the ancient world, a person's name meant something. Uh, these Hebrew boys had Hebrew names. Uh, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. And that is the Lord Yahweh, the true God. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azaria means the Lord Yahweh is my helper. Do you see the great truths about the true God that are enshrined in these names that were given to these boys by their mum and dad? Uh, truths which were to be a part of, who, of how they thought and, who, and their identity as, as, uh, as God's people. And so the Babylonians wanted to get rid of those Hebrew names. They replaced them with Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Now, these names have meaning too. These names are, are, are derived from the so-called gods of the Babylonians. These names each call upon the false Babylonian gods for help, to be of assistance. So that is the first thing in the re-education program. Secondly... Daniel and his friends were instructed, were to be instructed in the literature and the language of Babylon. And now at one level you can say, well, if they're going to work as public officials in Babylon and help build this great Babylon, you know, that seems to be an appropriate thing to do. But what does that actually mean? Well, its effect was that the myths and the legends of Babylon would take the place of the scriptures as being the, their source of knowledge and the, uh, and, the, the, and the information which would shape their view of the world, their worldview, how they looked at the world, how they interpreted the world. The Babylonians had their own accounts of creation, uh, of the great battle between uh, Marduk and Tiamat, Tiamut, uh, the, the great fight in the heavenlies that spat out what became the, the world and, and, the, and, uh, and the universe. Uh, the Babylonians had, had bizarre and, uh, and false views of how this world came into existence and uh, the, the nature of, of God. Uh, in fact, uh, the book of Genesis, uh, the first few chapters, when you line that up against the stories of the Babylonians, it is in sharp contrast it's almost a polemic against the Babylonian uh, creation accounts. Thirdly, these young men would be lavished with the luxury of food and wine which would come from the very table of the king. Now, they say and it's true that there is no such thing as a free lunch. I think that's true. Uh, what this is called is ingratiation. If you look up ingratiation in the uh, dictionary, uh, it'll tell you, at least Wikipedia does, I don't know how true it is, if it's on Wikipedia, but anyway, Wikipedia is, uh, defines it this way. It says, a strategic attempt to win someone's loyalty so that they will be dependent. In this case, dependent upon the king and, and loyal to the king. Now, ingratiation is a strategy which is still used today. Uh, they say that uh, you catch uh, flies by using honey. And that's true. Uh, you know, friends, bear this in mind. Uh, when, uh, when the world, uh, be it uh, your employer, be it the corporate world, whatever, when the world 
lavishes you with titles, with luxuries, with bonuses, with flattery, it's not because they love you. It's because they want your life. That's why. They want your loyalty. And the goal of the Babylonians for Daniel and his friends was to obliterate all memory of Israel and all memory of Israel's God from their minds and to instill in them to instill in them a Babylonian worldview and to instill in them a dependence upon Nebuchadnezzar as the provider of all of the luxuries and the blessings and the things which they enjoyed now that is how satan operates today amongst us in australia we do not suffer religious persecution for being Christians uh, anywhere near to the extent that our brothers and sisters do in other cultures. Uh, you know, talk to people who know something about what's going on in North Korea these days, if you're a Christian. Right? We don't suffer that kind of persecution. Uh, Satan doesn't work in this land in that way, but Satan is just as powerfully at work here. And Satan uses far more subtle ways, far more subtle techniques. He wants us, he wants you and I to melt into our culture and our society. He wants to seduce us into forgetting about God and thinking that the good things of this life come from somewhere else come from our career, come from our promotion, come from our investments, come from our superannuation, come from our own hand, come from simply being Australians. And that's what some people think, isn't it? You know, why are we so wealthy? It's because of us, because we're Australians. Satan doesn't want us to read our Bibles. He doesn't want us to fill our minds with the uh, a godly worldview. And the last thing in the world he wants is he does not want us to read our Bible to our children. <laughs> he doesn't want that. Uh, he doesn't want us to instill in the young a, uh, a knowledge of God and a way of understanding the world that is so right. He wants us to fill our minds and theirs with the thinking, with the philosophy, and with the values of this world. And he does so subtly. It's called seduction. He lures us into that. Now, how did Daniel and his friends respond? Well, let me say this, that uh, Daniel in particular responded in two uh, different ways that, that uh, are quite consistent with each other. First of all, he wanted to be a good citizen of Babylon. Uh, in fact, uh, that was a godly thing to do. The prophet Jeremiah uh, later actually wrote a letter to the Jews living in exile in Babylon. Uh, you can read that letter in Jeremiah chapter 29. And in that letter, speaking uh, the word of God, the prophetic word of God, Jeremiah encouraged the exiles to, and I quote, seek the welfare of the city, to actually live life in Babylon, to engage with that community, that society, and to seek after the welfare of Babylon and the people around them. That is true for us. Uh, as Christians, we uh, we need to resist the temptation to, uh, to live together in, uh, or to retreat into Christian ghettos where the only people that we uh, engage with are Christians. Uh, it's appropriate for us to be actively engaged in our community. Uh, we do that in uh, informal ways by simply building relationships with uh, non-Christians. Uh, having non-Christians as our friends. Uh, very important thing. Uh, building relationships, caring for other people 
and indeed even involving ourselves in the process of decision making for our community our leaders of our community often value input from the diversity of those who live in the australian society and there is opportunity for us as christians to be inputting into some of the big decisions that those who lead this community are involved in making through public submissions through petitions and and so on there's a good and a right thing for us to do as christian people who love australia and who love the non-christians of australia heaven is our home but we ought not to disengage from the community as some christians have done ultimately of course uh, seeking the good of our community the welfare of the city will mean that we're going to reach out to the people around us with the gospel uh, take the saving message of jesus to people that's the best way that we can be loving our australian society so daniel wanted to be a good citizen of babylon but not at the expense of being a good citizen of heaven he wanted to be a good citizen of heaven uh, he and his friends accepted the responsibility to contribute to their society but they determined to do so not as loyal babylonians but as dedicated men of god which meant that on occasions they would put their lives on the line by uttering a simple word with two letters in it the word no Uh, daniel's friends are best known for saying no uh, to the law which said that everyone must bow down and worship the statue of nebuchadnezzar Uh, that's why they were thrown into the fire for saying no on that occasion Uh, daniel is best known for saying no to the law against prayer that was why he was uh, tossed in with the lions but they may never have resisted on those dramatic occasions had they not resisted right at the very beginning have a look at verse 8 verse 8 but daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way right see the issue there he didn't want to defile himself with the food now the commentators kind of argue about what was the actual issue that he was thinking about with respect to the food Uh, i think most likely daniel was concerned about eating food that uh, was which was unclean according to uh, the uh, old testament laws according to uh, jewish food laws Uh, he may also have realized the ingratiation issue that eating from the king's table would indebt him to the king Uh, whatever the case by asking this question there is no doubt that daniel was putting his life at risk by even asking this question nebuchadnezzar uh, did not hesitate to separate a person's head from their torso uh, at a whim at the slightest uh, sign of someone being a problem you know that was the problem that the official that daniel actually raised this issue with had in respect to himself notice also that uh, daniel in raising this issue and trusting in god for the outcome that he wasn't rude or arrogant about it instead he was uh, polite and he was humble sometimes uh, when we christians take a stand uh, we we can just sort of move into the area of being a bit caustic um, in the way that we do it Uh, we can sometimes uh, take issue in a way that appears rude and arrogant to other people in fact sometimes is rude and arrogant and when people uh, reject what we're saying uh, we then just dismiss that as being an ungodly rejection of the gospel Uh, not recognizing that the way that we have actually come across to the person might have a big uh, 
uh, part of that uh, in it as well. But Daniel was respectful to the Babylonians and God was faithful to Daniel. We see uh, God's faithfulness scattered throughout this chapter uh, in a few different ways. First of all, when Daniel asked for permission not to eat from the king's table, in verse 9, have a look at verse 9, it, why did the official respond positively to Daniel or sympathetically? It was because God caused the official to show favour and sympathy. God actually worked in the heart of this, uh, of this pagan man to cause him to, to sympathise with what Daniel was raising with him. God was gracious. God was faithful. And then when uh, they decided to do a bit of a trial and just give you know, Daniel and his friends vegetables and water for 10 days and see how they looked at the end of that, uh, when they lived on vegetables and water for 10 days, in verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, how did they look? Healthier and better nourished than anyone else. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if there's any vegetarians here uh, today, but this has got to be the key verse for uh, vegetarians. So if I was a vegetarian, I'd probably have this one sort of stuck up on the wall somewhere. Uh, vegetarians must love this verse, but I'm sorry to say, I don't think that's the point. Uh, in fact, I understand the Hebrew word, which is translated as better nourished, uh, can also mean fatter. <laughs> uh, it's hard to know how you grow fat um, on vegetables, but I think the idea here, here is that they... You know, it's like my, my, my Chinese auntie, I've told you about her before, you know, every time I see her every few years, she looks at my increasing girth and she says, Scott, you're looking very prosperous. Right? Now, you know, the point here is that they didn't wither away. That uh, this was a miracle. This was a sign of God's faithfulness towards them. Then in verses 17 through to 20, we're told that God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding far superior to anyone else. Notice it was God who gave this knowledge and wisdom to them. Notice uh, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, when he talked to these men, found that they were the most knowledgeable, the most wise young men that he had ever met in his entire life. That they were ten times wiser and more knowledgeable than all of the magicians and the wise men of Babylon. That is the Magi, same kind of category of person who came to meet the baby Jesus in Matthew's, uh, the early chapters of Matthew. It was God who'd made them like that. And God also gave Daniel the ability to interpret visions and dreams. Now, that is going to be a very important feature as we work our way through this book of Daniel. And so God's faithfulness is a double-edged sword. He was faithful in his promise to send them into exile, but in exile he did not let his people go. As Christians... The daily challenge for us is to live in this world but not to be swallowed up by this world. Daniel drew a line in the sand, the issue of food. Later on, he would be faced with the bigger issue of a law against prayer. Had he not said no at this point, I dare say it would have been much harder for him to say no as he went further into this ingratiation, as he went further into this re-education program. The food issue was the thin edge of the wedge. It was the first stage of Nebuchadnezzar's re-education plan. And Satan's plan for us is that you and I should melt into our society. He wants us to make compromises. It seems that his strategy isn't that we go from being absolutely godly people to being absolutely ungodly people overnight. It happens through a process 
of small compromises, which over time mean that we just don't say no. I want to suggest to you that the word no, graciously and respectfully spoken, but the word no has to become an important part of our vocabulary. Uh, in Romans chapter 12, we are not to be conformed to this world. We are to be transformed instead. It's these uh, small compromises where we just don't say no that over time mean that we end up losing our distinctives and our lives can become indistinguishable from the lives of the non-Christians with whom we live. Small compromises. Uh, compromises at work. Uh, I'm reminded of a friend of mine who uh, the boss called him into the office and said, uh, we're going to offer you a promotion. $10,000 a year extra. The friend had five kids and a mortgage. That was pretty attractive. The boss said, well, it just means that you're going to have to be on call seven days a week. My friend said, look, I want to be a loyal and good employee and I'm happy to be on call, except I don't work on Sundays. On Sundays, I spend Sundays at church with God's people. And I don't work on Wednesday nights because that's when I'm in Bible study group. So I'm happy for the promotion, happy to be a good employee for you, I'm happy to be called in at other times, but I'm just drawing a line in the sand here. He wouldn't have said that to him, but he would have spoken graciously and respectfully. No Sunday work. Oh, I don't work on Wednesdays. That's drawing a line in the sand early on in the piece. It uh, prevented him from being compromised severely later on. Uh, he didn't get the promotion. In fact, he found himself looking for another job, but God was faithful to him. God honoured that kind of drawing the line in a sand. Otherwise, he would have been sucked into the vortex of corporate slavery. He was wise enough to draw a line in the sand right at the very beginning to preserve his life of Christian fellowship with his brothers and sisters and his worship of God in a corporate sense. The world wants us to make compromises in the way that we treat people. Uh, to be uh, sucked in in the workplace when they start uh, gossiping about particular individuals. And we sort of kind of move a bit closer into that discussion rather than moving away from it. He wants us to make compromises in our morality. Uh, we're not necessarily going to turn into adulterers overnight but it's pretty easy to start to look at a bit of pornography, thin edge of the wedge kind of stuff. We need to draw lines in the sand right at the very beginning of that kind of process. Satan wants us to make compromises in our beliefs. We're probably not going to turn heretical overnight, but when we start softening up on the hard edges of what the gospel is saying, start doubting some of the uh, truths of the Bible, that we make that's the thin edge of the wedge. We need to draw lines in the sand and say, no, the scriptures are inspired and infallible and authoritative. And that is where I stand. There are all sorts of compromises that Satan wants us to make. And we can't really list them all because there's as many compromises as there are sins, right? But the, the point of it is this. Daniel drew a line in the sand. He did it very early. And we're told in verse 8 that he resolved not to defile himself. Uh, the authorised version says something like he committed in his heart not to defile himself. That was a prior commitment that he had made which would then be the basis upon which he would act as a loyal citizen in Babylon but as a person whose prior commitment was his heavenly citizenship. He resolved not to defile himself. And it is because of that that he was able to be very, very effective 
uh, in being used by God to seek the welfare of the city. By the time we get to the end of Daniel, we see that Nebuchadnezzar's heart had been changed towards God. That Nebuchadnezzar went through periods where he was actually a very godly man, broken and humble and actually contrite before the true God of Israel through the ministry of Daniel. He was able to seek the welfare of the city but to make no compromises and to do so as one who turned out to be a very great man of God. Now, we need to be like that, don't we? We need to engage with our community but we need to have the word no in our vocab. We need to be able to draw lines in the sand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people, Israel. We thank you, Father God, that uh, even as you disciplined Israel in exile in Babylon, that uh, you were faithful in upholding your people, that uh, you granted wisdom to Daniel and his friends, that they were able to engage with their society positively in a way that brought great honour and glory to you. And so we pray for ourselves. Uh, May we not be conformed to this world. May we live as uh, good, responsible uh, exemplars uh, in our community, engaging with people, uh, seeking the welfare of the city, the nation that we live in, but, Father, that we would do so from a uh, very clear biblical mindset and a heart that seeks your honour and glory above all things. And, Father, that uh, that means that we, we learn to say no. Pray that you would grant us the wisdom to see where a particular issue may be the thin edge of the wedge and uh, that we would say no to that right at the very beginning that the sin would not get a foothold in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.